Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Hey guys, welcome back to the Restoration Living Podcast as we have been continuing on our journey through the book of Revelation and we have been looking at the church communities that John was commanded by Jesus to give messages to. And as we finished up in our last session, we concluded the church community in Thyatira. And now we are going to pick up where we left off in Revelation chapter 3, looking at the church community of Sardis. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn there to Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, the book of Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to look at what Jesus has to say to this church community. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Now, once again, you know, this is a reminder that this is not, we've looked at numerous times, that this is not a heavenly being angel. This is the messenger, the angelos, the pastor to the church in Sardis, and he wants them to understand in this church community that he has the sevenfold, the seven part, the total complete spirit of God, and he holds the seven stars in his hands that Jesus holds. Yes, these seven church communities, but symbolically he is holding the entire church in his hands, his entire, you know, church community, the capital C church, all belongs to Jesus and he's holding it in his hands. So we looked at this briefly before, but let's go back and talk about the church community in Sardis. Sardis was once the capital of an ancient kingdom called Lydia, which was one of the most important areas of the Persian Empire. It was conquered by Alexander the Great in 340 BC and became an incredibly important Greek city central to the worship of Artemis. And we talked about that earlier when we looked at the church community in Ephesus. If you were to go there today, it's now the city of Sart in the Manisa province of Turkey. And if you went there, you would see that the city of Sardis under the reign of the Romans was an incredibly important city when we talk about something called the cult of the emperor. And we've touched on this before, but just as a reminder that beginning with the first Caesars, that after they died, the Romans uh, put them through something called an apotheosis. It's where a human being became a divine god. And the Romans, of course, were not the first to do this. The Persians did it. The Babylonians did it. Um, but the 
Romans began to really incorporate this and they began to worship the emperors as if they were part of the pantheon, just like they would worship Zeus or Athena or any of the other gods that were part of the Roman pantheon. And so as this went on, we see what began to happen is just as you would find a temple to Zeus, right, or a temple to Poseidon, you would find a temple to the emperors, and people would go and offer sacrifices and worship them. But as this grew, many areas began to incorporate the worship of the emperor into daily life, especially in the agora, in the marketplace. And we're going to dig deeper into this when we get further into the book of Revelation and, and actually look at the prophecies about the actual empire of Rome itself. But it's important to recognize that worshiping the emperor, especially under the reign of Nero, that Nero was the first Caesar who demanded worship as a god during his lifetime, before they transitioned Caesar into the place of the gods, the apotheosis of, of Caesar, after Caesar died. But Nero was the first to not just accept, but also require his worship. And so Sardis had a massive emperor cult of worship going on in it, but it also had the largest Jewish synagogue outside of Palestine. So as far as the Roman world went, this was the largest Jewish community. But as you dig through the remains of this, you see that the people of Sardis were more and more incorporating these two things together. That the Jews and the pagans were interconnected in unhealthy ways. And we're going to talk more about that as we go, but it's important to recognize that the, you know, the, the synagogue as it grew actually around 60 AD began to not only you know, interconnect, but also there was a, as the persecution of the Christians came, they tried to distance themselves and eventually this became unsuccessful. In 60 AD, um, the actual synagogue of, of the Jews um, separated from Rome, and, and this is something that Jesus is telling them, hey, just as you saw this happen to the Jews, that they became persecuted, you're going to become persecuted as well. So let's keep going and let's look at this together, that as we see in, in chapter 3, starting in verse 2, says, I know all the things you do, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Now, this is the first church community to break the pattern. In the beginning, there's the, the greeting, and then there is the compliment, right, where Jesus usually has something nice to say. But Jesus has nothing nice to say about the Christians in Sardis, in the church community of Sardis. He tells them, hey, you're dead. 
and you need to strengthen what remains because there's only a little bit of you you you, you have a reputation for being alive now one of the things that is really important to recognize is that like we talked about that there was this divide that began to happen and as the Jews became persecuted the Jews in Sardis we see began to try to build bridges to protect themselves from this persecution they adopted the symbolism and even the worship of the pagan gods in their synagogue in the ruins of the of the ancient area of Sardis you can look in the ancient synagogues and see how the symbolism of the pagan gods and the statues to them were actually in the walls of the synagogue and they did this in order to placate the Romans to get away from this persecution they said hey rather than us being separate let's commingle Let's worship Yahweh and the other gods so that the synagogue could continue and go on. If you went to the ancient marketplace, you would be able to go in and see in the stalls, there are actually stalls that had the Jewish star along with the pagan symbols in the marketplace showing that the Jewish merchants were intermingling with the pagan ones and that they were allowing to you know be united in this way and while that may sound like a wonderful thing politically it was a terrible thing spiritually because the Jews were now taking on the worship practices of the pagans in an effort to keep their lives and Jesus is telling them, hey, you need to wake up. You're like a person who's asleep, comfortable in their beds and settled. And if you don't wake up, Jesus is saying, I'm going to come for you as an unexpectedly as a thief in the night. And of course, we heard that before, right? Jesus made that promise before that he was going to come unexpectedly in judgment. But Jesus is telling them, just like he was saying in Matthew 24, I'm going to come unexpectedly, so get ready. He's telling them, stop being comfortable in your faith and wake up and start recognizing that the, the time is near. And this was true that the, the judgment of Jesus on the Roman Empire and on the Jews was coming soon. And Jesus is saying, hey, you may have thought that you were safe, but you're really not. Now, one of the things that's important to recognize in the history of ancient Sardis is that the reason it, it was able to be captured, remember it was a Persian city, and when Persia was defeated by the Romans, that this was something that as they were taken over, excuse me, by the Greeks and then the Romans, that there was a siege that was laid to the temple of, or to the city of Sardis, but there was a small secret door in one of the walls, and because one person tried to sneak out the entire army saw that weakness and was able to overrun and defeat the city. And Jesus wants them to say, hey, just as Sardis used to feel secure, that one little area caused a ruin for everything else. But look at what Jesus says in verse 4. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Now this is another powerful symbol in the Jewish culture. In, in on the festivals, especially on Passover, when you did the Passover Seder, the, the family members were supposed to wear white clothes, 
white garments, white robes, to symbolize how God had washed them clean. And so this symbol is carried over into the book of Revelation to say, look, the ones who have not soiled their clothes, their clothing is clean, their robes are pure and white. They have not defiled themselves with evil. And Jesus is wanting them to see, and we're going to see this throughout the book of Revelation, that those who have white robes are those who have been cleansed and purified by Jesus. They have not turned away from their faith and worshipped other gods. In other places, this will be used to show that, that those who stayed true and were martyrs, who gave their life to Jesus and surrendered in their life and died for the sake of the faith, we, we see this promise fulfilled from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18, that says, Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. They are, though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. And this would have been a symbol that the church community in Sardis would have recognized, that they were part of this, you know, seeing this synagogue who had compromised. And most Christian church communities came out of the Jewish church communities. They would have seen that compromise and the intermingling of the pagan with the those who were set apart for Yahweh. And they would have said, hey, we want to stay away from that. We do not want to fall victim to it. Jesus wants them to be warned of the dangers of getting comfortable, of getting connected with the other pagan you know, peoples and other practices. Jesus is saying, hey, some of you have stayed true and your clothing is not soiled by evil. And he makes this promise, which is very interesting. He says, I will not erase their names from the book of life. Now, one of the things we see throughout the prophets is that God keeps a book, a scroll, with the names of the righteous on it. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 8, and even Psalm 58. The clearest of this is probably in Daniel chapter 12 where it says those who endure the end of the trials will have their names written in the book of life. This is not a new idea. A, a person from a Jewish culture would have made this connection. The Apostle Paul also mentions the book of life in, in Philippians chapter 4. So this idea is that, the, that Jesus in his temple keeps a scroll, keeps a book with the names of the faithful on it. This would have been a connection to the ledger that every Jewish synagogue had of its members, the people who were connected to their community. And the same way that they would have kept a ledger of members, a scroll with a membership list on it, that Jesus in his temple has a list of who are the members of Jesus's community, of the church, those who are faithful. And if a person was unfaithful, they would be excommunicated. They would be kicked out of the synagogue and their name would be removed. And so when this happened, that the Romans expected the, the Jews, you know, saying, hey, Caesar is Lord. They would have to make this proclamation to have peace, to be part of the community. And if they would have done that, man, they would have said, you know, no, we're not going to do that. We don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. And a Christian would have their name removed when they did that, when they refused to go along and they would say, no, Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote that, right? That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. 
And that was a powerful image because when the emperor would come through a city, everyone would salute, everyone would bow in their presence and would shout the name of Caesar. And they would say, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And Jesus wanted them to know that one day that will be reversed and people will not proclaim that Caesar is Lord. They will proclaim that Christ is Lord. And so Jesus wants them to know that even though they may have their names removed from the ledgers in the synagogue for following Jesus, that Jesus tells them, I will not take your name off of my ledger, off of the book of life. It's a promise to the church of Sardis, but it also is a promise that we can apply to our life today, that when we're faithful, that there's going to be a roll call. Right? There's going to be a listing. And when we walk to enter the community, the same way a Jew would enter the synagogue, and they would say, hey, is your name on the list? We'll be able to say, yes, my name is on the book of life, on that scroll. We belong to Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. We looked at this in our episode last time, this reminder that there's a difference between simply hearing and listening. Anyone can hear. My children hear me ask them to do things, but they don't always listen. <laughs> I don't do the same with my Heavenly Father. I have heard plenty of times the Word and the message, but I have not always listened, and I have not always done what God asks of me. Jesus is telling these church communities that if you need to do more than just hear, you also need to listen. Jesus wants to remind them of the difference that as Jesus commanded the disciples, the apostles, to go and teach the gospel, he told them, hey, you need to be willing to go and preach. And people need to not just listen to it or hear it, excuse me, they need to listen as well. We must commit to understanding what Jesus says and apply it to our lives. So as we finish this short church community in the church of Sardis, when you say, how do we apply this? Well, the easiest thing to do is to wake up, recognize that the world is dying more and more every day. Now, I am praying for revival. I am I'm believing that Jesus can put into place a returning to him. But if you turn on the news and flip to the TV channels and look at the movies and, and the entertainment of today, you have a hard time finding very Christian-oriented entertainment. It's out there. But this full of things in this day and age that, are, that go directly against Jesus and his way of living. But the crazy thing is the studies all show that 80% of people in the United States claim to be Christ followers. But very, very few actually live that life. And this is a fulfillment that just as Jesus said that the followers of his day follow the writings of the prophet Isaiah, that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's true of the vast majority of Christians in the United States of America. They would say with their lips, their mouths, that they follow Jesus, but their lives and their hearts do not. So what we need to recognize is that, man, up until this point in history, being a follower of Jesus has been pretty easy. The majority of our culture was built on Christian concepts. But more and more, each day, we are turning away from that. That the founding documents of our nation say something like this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed with, by their creator 
with certain unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The foundation of the American lifestyle of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is founded on the belief in the Christian God that makes all men and women equal in his sight. We are equal in value, separate in function, and God loves us all. But when you take God out of it, what happens? And so as we look at this man, a, a very sad study done in 2021 says that only 11% of Americans read their Bibles daily and that the majority of millennials, over 90% of millennials don't read their Bibles at all. We've talked about this before, but since the death of God movement hit the, the Americas in the 1890s, ever since then, we have slowly been replacing God with something else. You see, we were created to worship, and so we can't help but worship. But we have changed what we worship. And so as we finish this and move into Philadelphia, I just want to encourage you to ask yourself, hey, am I worshiping God with my lips or with my heart? Am I saying nice things? Am I proclaiming that I'm a follower of Jesus with my mouth but not with my life? Wake up. Recognize that judgment is coming. And maybe it will come individually. Maybe Jesus will return soon. We're going to talk more about that as we dig deeper into the into this book. But whether it is near or far, whether it is a judgment that you and I get individually when we enter into heaven, because Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, or whether Jesus returns and judges the whole world. Either way, we want to be found in the Lamb's book of life. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, like we talked about last time. All right, we've got more time in this session together, so let's move from Sardis and move into the church community of Philadelphia, the church community of Philadelphia. So Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one that has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Another reminder of what we have seen before in the earlier passages. Now, what what was Philadelphia? Well, it's important to recognize that there were multiple cities with similar names. This Philadelphia was a city located in what is now called Alasahir and is found in the Manisa province in the Aegean region of Turkey. It was a very prominent and prosperous city until AD 70 or AD 17, excuse me, when a massive earthquake struck the area. The earthquake was so bad that the Roman government gave them an exemption from taxes for five years. However, other than that exemption, the Roman government did very little to help the, help to, um, to rebuild Philadelphia. Now, what would end up happening is that as a result that, that the city of Philadelphia would have to tear out its vineyards so that those in Rome would be the front edge of commerce rather than Philadelphia. As vineyards were the backbone of their economy, this made a, a huge feeling of betrayal from the city of Philadelphia towards the city of Rome. And between this judgment where they had to tear up all of their vineyards and the very little help they got from the government made them very, very distrustful and hate the Romans. It's very interesting that the church community in Philadelphia also had feelings of mistrust. This is why it would have been a, a comfort for them to hear from Jesus that he was the one that is holy and true. 
all of these other people had let the Philadelphians down, the Romans had, the local people had. And since Rome was not true to them, Jesus wants them to know, hey, I'm the one that is true. I am faithful. I will not leave you. The government may have been unfaithful. The community may have been unfaithful to you, but I will not be unfaithful to you. And we've also seen where Jesus talked about having the key of David. This is incredibly important that it symbolizes that Jesus has authority. Keys symbolize authority. That's why when at Caesarea Philippi, when Peter makes his proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah and he, Jesus tells Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. He's telling him, I'm going to give you authority that Peter during his lifetime, this is why the Catholic Church says that Peter was the first pope, that Peter was the head of the Christian movement during his lifetime. Jesus gave him the keys, the authority of the kingdom here on earth. And so the key of David refers to the authority of David. Well, what authority did David have? He was the king, the Davidic covenant. If you go back and listen to our series on considering covenants, the Davidic covenant was the promise that God would always keep a king from the line of David on the throne. Well, since Jesus is eternal, he defeated death. He's always going to be on the throne. And so Jesus wants them to understand when they they see Jesus having this key, that when Jesus opens a door, no man can shut it. He has all the authority. When Jesus shuts a door, no one can open it. And so as all of the things in their world seemed like it was upside down, that no one could be trusted, the government couldn't be trusted, the community couldn't be trusted, Jesus is saying, I am faithful and true. That just as everything around them was out of control, Jesus wants them to know I am in control. When I make a decision, it cannot be changed. And so what we end up seeing as that as Jews experience persecution, like we talked about in the church of Sardis, the church of Philadelphia, excuse me, the synagogue of Philadelphia began to be persecuted too. And so what we ended up seeing was in order to distance themselves from the Christians, just like in other church communities, the synagogues, the Jews distanced themselves from the Christians here in Philadelphia as well. And so Jesus wants them to know that as everybody else, the government, the community, the, the synagogue, all of them kicked you out and were not trustworthy. Jesus wants them to know that, it, that to him, they are accepted and that he is trustworthy. All right, we've got enough time for a couple of more verses. So let's track on just a little bit further. Verses 8 and 9. I know the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Now, once again, we get back into the the pattern of Jesus giving a compliment, of telling them something that they're doing well. And he's saying, hey, in the middle of all of this persecution, and all of this betrayal that you may be weak, but you have some strength left. You have not given in. And Jesus gives them an amazing compliment. And he's telling them that he's going to make a way for them. He's going to open the door for them to be able to be taken care of and protected. And as a payment for this loyalty and all the sacrifice they've gone through for remaining faithful to Jesus, Jesus is going to say, hey, 
everyone else is going to understand that you are the ones that I truly love, not these Jews. I'm actually going to make the situation happen so that the Jews will recognize that you Christians are the ones I love and not them. Now, we're not sure exactly how this played out in the pages of history. We don't really know for sure. But one of the things that's interesting to think about is if they saw the faithfulness of the Christians and the Jews compromised. That's why Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan, that just as we saw in Sardis, the church, the Jewish, excuse me, the synagogues in Philadelphia compromised as well. And Jesus wants them to see how in the middle of the Christians' faithfulness, the Jews were not faithful. They compromised, but the Christians were willing to die for their faith rather than be compromised. And look at what, uh, we got time for one more verse, one more verse. Let's keep going. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Now, this is one more evidence as we wrap up. We're going to save some of this for next time. But Jesus is making the promise to a specific church community in a specific place in the world and a specific point in history. In the first century AD, these people, he is telling them, you're going to experience persecution. And he says the whole world is going to do it. Now, what persecution of the church happened all over the entire world that they would have seen? Well, remember, just as we talked about before, when an apocalyptic book says the whole world, it refers to the world that the reader understood it as. The reader would have understood the whole world to be the Roman Empire. They believed the Roman Empire owned everything, at least everything important, border to border across the whole known world. And Jesus wants them to understand that when the persecution comes on the church from the Romans, that you are going to be protected, that I'm going to, to protect you from that great time of testing to test those who belong to the world. And we're going to talk more about what that time of testing was in our upcoming sessions. But we see that Jesus says this is going to happen soon. This is yet one more indicator that we are on the right track. That the time of tribulation, the time of persecution, that so many people in my lifetime have taught what happened in the future, that there's a great time of tribulation coming. This is, Jesus is telling them, you're going to see it in your lifetime. So it has to be something that has already happened in history. And we're going to look at exactly what that is in the next session. But I want to encourage you with this. Just as the church community in Philadelphia stayed true under persecution and the changing unfaithfulness of the world, we can stay faithful as well. The world may be changing underneath our feet, but we can stay faithful to Jesus. Let's do that together. Be blessed, and I'll talk to you and see you in our next session. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.